Um, Michael. Hey, Dr. Chris, uh, thanks for coming on today. I've been to your website. You have a lot of good information there. Um, we just spoke with Cliff Albright from Black uh, Voters Matter. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Omari Hosang, Hosang on from Black Voters Matter in Louisiana. How can we uh, create and increase a black political infrastructure that can message to African-Americans, educate us politically, educate us on the uh, issues, the policies, and help turn out the African-American vote. Uh, I do agree that the Democratic Party has to do a better job of messaging. But at the same time, I think this is about self-preservation for African-Americans. And we ha I think we have to take more control of our own destiny. destiny and I don't think we can rely on the Democratic Party. We can use them as a tool, but can't look at them as a savior. How can we create a, uh, a greater black political infrastructure? I think, I think that's a great question and something that clearly we've been struggling with for decades now, how to create some sort of infrastructure that's self-sufficient and that doesn't rely on the Democratic Party or any party, therefore, to, to win elections or to pass legislation. I, the, to me, the first step is um, education and to, to really civic education and an understanding of politics and the importance of politics in people's lives. From our focus groups, from our research, we found that most people see politics as a periphery issue and that there's things such as paying rent, getting to work, getting their kids to school, dealing with health care issues, right, that they don't necessarily see as inherently political, but more as everyday survival issues that take up most of their attention. And so in order to move towards a system of infrastructure within the black community where we have sort of community level support, individual level support that doesn't rely upon these political parties, we have to continue to find ways to educate people um, and to push people into a politicization that in which they believe that politics is just as essential, is just an essential part of else that they're dealing with. Um, we kind of have unique tools that have come about in the last five, five or 10 years, right? We have social media now and ways to telecommunicate with people that we've never had before. And so I think we need to continue to experiment with these and, and find creative ways to use the limited funding that many of our community organizations have to reach as many people as possible and sort of inform them of the importance of politics and building networks um, and building channels and organizations that bring people together with an understanding that politics needs to something that they consider as an important element of their everyday life, and it's intertwined with everything they do. But again, this, this is not like I'm, I'm trying to be careful here and not talk about it as something simple, right, that we should have done already. This is, it's a very, very difficult hill to climb, and it's, it's probably going to take um, a, a sort of nationwide organization to do it. And we've seen a, a little bit of that, right, in the wake of Trayvon Martin and some of the um, the police killings over the last decade, um, the way that social media and the internet and some of these new technologies can be used to mobilize people, but there's still a gap between getting the information to people and actually building that infrastructure, right? Infrastructure similar to what we see maybe in a civil rights movement, right? Where it was necessary to go door to door and to talk to people. And so we, we kind of have to rely upon some of these old tactics of, of building, bringing people together along with possibly using some of the new technology we have. But again, it's, it's a really great question and, and another tough answer, right? None of these are easy questions. Well, before I go to Omicongo, before I go to Omicongo I'm going to uh, speak to that. And, uh, and this is what is, go what is going to have to take. 
it is, and again, let me be very clear. We're going to have to sit here and we're going to go back to the other shot. We're going to sit here and be very clear. We have to, we have to actually put a number to it and get black folks to understand that this shit ain't free. Let me say right. it. Let me, let me say this again for all the folk who are watching, listening. This shit ain't free. The work ain't free. Uh, and so the work that Christopher is doing, the work that uh, Cliff Albright and Black Voters Matter and Latasha Brown, the work that uh, Georgia Stand Up, all these different groups, the work that this stuff ain't free. And so it's a lot of people who spend their time out there talking about we need this and we need that and we need this and we should be doing that and we should be doing this here. And I'm sure Christopher, he, he hears all this sort of stuff. And then you're sitting there going, OK, but where are you, are you putting your money where your mouth is? And so that, that, is, that is what it takes. I have said to uh, folks on this show, hey, stop sending money to candidates and the parties and send it to third party groups because you know the money's going to get on the ground what is actually needed because I'm going to say it again. And this is the problem. And we're going to talk about it in our next segment. Christopher, you know this here. These white consultants, they want to dump everything on television. Bring up Christopher, y'all. Come on, please. They want to dump everything on television. They want to keep putting everything on television. And it reaches a point where you have total saturation. And the reality is people are like, man, turn that crap off. Turn it off. Turn it off. You have to put money on the ground. You have to look at the numbers and then go, okay, and your, as your research shows, huh, okay, in this particular state, in this region of the state, Inside of this region of the state, this is what this city and town did. And now that I'm breaking down the city and town, now I'm breaking down the precincts in that city and town. So now it's, oh, okay, this precinct here had a 1,000 eligible voters, but only 120 actually voted. Okay, target people and resources to knock on those doors to at least get that number from 120 up to 500. And now target this precinct and this precinct and this precinct. One, that requires money. That requires people. And if you don't have that, then you're stuck hoping a campaign comes around to do it. All right, folks, uh, the recent Louisiana uh, primary shows black folks are simply not showing up at the polls like they did when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008. That's no shock. Uh, the reality is uh, many people expected that. But if you look at 2010, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 20, 22, uh, you've seen uh, that number go down. My next guest has been researching why mobilizing black voter post-Obama has been so difficult. Joining from Sacramento, California, is Christopher Tyler, the director of the Black Voter Project and co-founder of Black Insights Research. Uh, Victor, glad to have me, glad to have you on the show. Um, what's the, um, uh, the top uh, points of your research? So, as you mentioned, it's no surprise black turnout is down and has been down since 2012. Um, I have a slide that shows really the drop in voter turnout over the last um, 10 years now it's been. So from 2012 to 2016, we've seen differences in upwards of 6% um, voter turnout nationally and even larger differences across some of the most important battleground states. And those differences continue, continue to persist from 2016 to 2020. And this comes from data from the Center for American Progress um, suggesting that there's a ways to go to get black folk out to the polls at the same rates as they were during the Obama, Obama administration. And the, the Democrats are falling behind there. Um, 
Another slide that I brought shows that this coming election in 2024, there are some significant gains to be made um, across um, congressional districts now, looking at Democrats regaining the House here. Um, there are significant districts with large percent African-American that are swing districts, right? And here you see in North Carolina, New York, Ohio, districts that are going to go suggested to go one way or another Democrat or Republican just by a few points here. And then we look at Louisiana, right, which we were just talking about, um, another swing district there that's over 30 percent black. So there's a, a lot that can be done, but the Democrats really aren't doing what needs to be on or haven't in the last decade or so. Um, the research that I've conducted is looking at ways to get Democrats out to the polls, one of which being to really identify the threats to democracy, the threats to racial progress. Um, in this case, it's going to be Donald Trump. It's going to be the MAGA Republicans. It might even be some of these institutions that have now seemed to turn against racial progress in the black community, uh, specifically the Supreme Court, possibly even police, um, institutions of law enforcement. And my research suggests that identifying these institutions as a threat to the community is one of the most significant ways to get black folks to care about politics, to feel it's important to turn out to politics and to get out there and vote. So, again, so when you begin to unpack this here and I'm going to throw this out uh, and this is obviously going to tick off some of our people, uh, but they'll get the hell over it. And, and I've been saying this for a very long time here. Um, when Obama ran in 2008, he did not need the political infrastructure that had been in place in the Democratic Party since Reverend Jackson's run in 84 and 88. In 1988, Reverend Jackson, at his insistence, uh, with the installation of Ron Brown as DNC chair, with the work of the late Dr. Ron Walters, with the work of Harold Ickes and others, they actually created an infrastructure that was in place, a funding infrastructure, um, uh, you name it. When Obama runs, he doesn't need it. Um, you, had, uh, you had where uh, Pluff, David Pluff, David Axelrod, determined that what they did need to spend money uh, on black infrastructure, black-owned media, things along those lines, because, frankly, they already had the votes. Same thing happened in 2012. We saw, we saw the dismantling of also the DNC's political infrastructure with Obama for America, which then, uh, which then was created. And so you sort of had the DNC that was gutted, and then you had this third this, this entity that he controlled. I, was, I kept saying then, hey, y'all, he only going to be there eight years. It's going to be folks running after that. And... Ever since, since he left in 2017, they have been trying to repair all of the damage that was caused by completely saying, we don't need that infrastructure. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. The, the Democrats really did take advantage of and kind of take for granted the turnout that they got from black voters during the Obama administration. Um, there's a long line of literature that suggests the first of any when it comes to political representation creates extreme levels of enthusiasm. Um, the hope and change sort of mantra played on that. And black folk turned out in droves at historic rates to elect Barack Obama. Um, research shown in 2012, right, black turnout for the first time in American history since we started recording turnout in the 1940s and 50s surpassed white turnout levels under um, as people came out to vote for Obama. And so I think it was sort of taken for granted that 
this first, this American president, changed the way that um, the political spectrum looked with black turnout at such high levels in states like North Carolina, Virginia, um, Ohio, Michigan, these swing states that have significant black populations but aren't overwhelmingly black went Democrat rather easily along with the high turnout rates in general across the country. Um, we fast forward to 2016, 2020, this excitement, especially among the black community, had tapered off and fallen off. And the Democrats were no longer sort of riding this wave of historic black turnout, but as you mentioned, had not yet decided to reinvest and reinvigorate their um, democratic machine in ways that were needed, right? And we see statewide levels such as Abrams campaign working to do this uh, in places such as Georgia, but on a national scale and in as many battleground states as are needed to maintain the Obama coalition from 2008 and 2012 was nowhere to be found. And it's really not gonna be found again because who knows when we're going to have another candidate that we can consider a first, maybe possibly a black woman candidate but, that will inspire the black community in similar ways. But, but here's the deal, and, I, and I'll say this here, I, and I, I have been very clear on this, and again, I've been saying this for years, um, and that is whoever, who, if anybody who's black running, they cannot use the exact same playbook that Obama used. And here's what I mean by that. Um, there was a nine-point gap between black men and black women in, Bom in Obama's re-election with Romney in 2012. That was some dissatisfaction there. Whether we, whether we want to own it or not, there were a lot of people who felt that more could have been done. And so part of the issue that Democrats have, that, 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 that black candidates are going to have to deal with, uh, and again, I believe that Senator Cory Booker and Senator Kamala Harris tried to use the Obama playbook when they ran for president in 2020. That sucker didn't work. It didn't work. And so guess what? It's been used one time. It ain't going to work again. Black voters are going to be making demands uh, of any black candidate because they're going to say, hey, we see how we voted uh, for Obama. That's just uh, that's just a, a, a fact. And so I think that people have to understand the newness, the first time seeing the first black family, blah, blah, blah. As I kept saying, hey, guess what? We stayed at the inauguration parade for eight years. Everybody else left and they actually got to work. And so. Uh, and so Democrats cannot sit around and go, hey, where is the second black hope or turn them out? What has to happen here? And, and I've, again, I've been very clear on this. And a lot of other people getting mad when I say it on these uh, mainstream media shows. I'm going to be I'm going to talk slowly when I say this. The fundamental problem with the Democratic Party today is white media consultants refuse to listen to black people, listen to black consultants, listen to black pollsters, refuse to put the resources in those places early, and then they expect black people to come save their asses come mid to late October. I, I mean, you said it perfectly. I think one of the most recent sort of research experiments we put together speaks to this. Um, we ran what's called a conjoint experiment on a national poll of black folk. This is something that I don't know has ever been done before, where we asked um, respondents, this is only black respondents, to select between two candidates as we varied the different characteristics of those candidates. And so if, if um, the last slide, I brought um, some slides, the last slide could be put up. What we found is that of those candidates, 
here are sort of the characteristics that were seen, shown to be the most important when it came to selecting a candidate for black respondents on a national poll, right? And so, of course, they wanted a black person, um, wanted a female candidate, wanted someone who was middle-aged, around 85, with eight years of um, experience in politics, um, picked someone who's a state legislator compared to some other occupations, um, was important that someone was an ally of the Black Lives Matter movement, actually preferred someone endorsed by Sanders rather than endorsed by um, Biden, and preferred someone who uh, was a veteran. And so as you see on the left side here of the, the findings, right, the most important factors here when deciding between potential candidates was someone's support for Black Lives Matter, someone's race, and someone's years in politics. And so trying to build that perfect candidate is going to be a really hard sell, and it's going to be really difficult for Democrats to find someone who fits that same mold, if not impossible, as you mentioned, right? And so I'm really encouraging, through my research, other ways to look at turning black folk out. And one of the most important um, factors, aside from sort of this Obama factor, this great hope factor, is actually threat. And looking at how perceptions of threat can push people to the polls in lieu of this sort of magical candidate that creates the same inspiration that we saw once um, during the Obama administration. Well, first of all, the uh, the data of Terrence Woodbury, the pollster, actually uh, uh, bolsters that uh, in terms of what he says is that when they run when they run their focus groups, when when black people are told that your vote can make the difference between winning and losing, that it actually works. His data also says that there are certain phrases you cannot use for younger black voters today. When a younger black voter hears voter suppression, they automatically go back to the 1960s. That's what they think. He said, but when you are specific about saying they are trying to shut down our early voting locations, they're trying to get rid of ballot drop boxes, they're trying to stop us uh, from voting absentee balloting, he said that resonates much differently. Uh, but, but I want to stay on this whole point about uh, the white consultants, uh, because we have experience with that. We have experience when we try to uh, put in our plan, put in our plans uh, in 2016, 2020, uh, and the white consultants uh, wanted to give us a pittance of the money. Uh, and in fact, what happened in 2020, uh, as opposed so as opposed to provide giving us advertising money in the Warnock and Ossoff runoff, this is the D DSCC, uh, controlled by Senator Chuck Schumer, they, gave, they actually gave us money from the celebrity influencer budget. And so we were like, I'm sorry. And other uh, African-Americans said, wait a minute, Roland has a media company. This is a media company. This is not a celebrity influencer. But what happens, if people need to understand the nuts and bolts, those white consultants, especially the media people, they make their money off of TV buys. And so they don't want that money to go in a ground game and non-television because that's less money goes in their pockets. And when the election is over and the candidate loses, they just go on to the next campaign to make more millions. And so there has to be a true reckoning, I believe, not just, and this is the, all the mistake that people keep making, what Jamie doing? People don't realize today the DNC does not take in a lot of money. The reality today with super PACs and things along those lines, DNC is taking in less money. So he's not controlling this apparatus. We're talking about the Democratic National Committee, 
the Democratic Governors Association, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. We're talking about American priorities, all of those packs. We're talking Emily's List. We're talking the, the environmental lobby. We're talking all of these groups where the billions are being spent. The fact of the matter is very few of them, including, uh, including uh, the uh, pro-choice folks, a lot of them are not making black folks a primary pro primary pro a priority and putting the resources uh, behind it. They're paying lip service, and that's why you see the turnout that you're seeing. I agree. I think that making black folks a priority in more than just sort of this ancillary spending is going to have to take place for Democrats to have the same wins and gains that they expect or that they want and that we saw during, you know, 2008, 2012 elections and the midterms there um, between. When you, when you talked about some of these other pollsters and some of the findings they have and, you know, as their work sometimes falls back into to these traditional tropes of, well, if we just tell people what the Democrats are doing and we explain to them that their Democrats are working to their benefit, they will turn out and vote. And there has been some evidence that that's the case. But when we conducted our own focus groups, we found that especially among low propensity voters or the, the black voters that are the hardest to turn out, they have very little faith in the Democratic Party at all. They, they hardly recognize Democratic leaders, even black Democratic leaders, and have low, low levels of political information. But the one topic that resonates the most with them is the Republicans, is Trump, is MAGA, is the threat that the GOP has. This is what got them out of their chairs, got them talking, got them interested in politics again. And so, you know, uh, from my own research and from the research that I've done with my firms and with my um, polling project, we're really pushing away from sort of these traditional, well, we just have to sell people on the Democratic Party right now, especially for black folk. That's that's not shown to be productive. No. We have to push people towards, okay, if you don't vote, if you don't turn out and vote and specifically vote for Democrats, the um, outcome that Republicans are going to put in place, something that we're kind of seeing in Louisiana after the recent election there, is going to be far, far worse than you ever imagined. Right. And, and, th and that's, that's what I call connecting the dots. And I try to spend a lot of time walking people through policy decisions. This is what the policies are going to look like if a Republican House is in charge, a Senate or in the Oval Office compared to when there's a Democrat. And again, I tell people, I don't fall in love with candidates. I fall in love with policies. And I'm looking at what is the policy outcome. And also, I can't look at a singular policy. Look, there are some people out there, they only vote based upon the issue of abortion, whether you're anti-abortion, whether you are pro-choice. Not me. I got to look at a multitude of issues uh, because in terms, in terms of how I examine. I, I'm going to go to a break. We're going to come back and pick up on this because there's something else uh, that I want to get at that people need to understand when we start talking about people who self-identify because that's part of the conversation as well. There are a lot of black people, especially younger black people, 50 and under, really, especially 45 and under, who are not self-identifying as Democrat. And so what do, must Democrats do? They've got to change how they target black voters and that one size fit all, that sucker don't work anymore. So we'll discuss that next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Net. So I paid attention to the self-identification aspect of black voters for the last 
uh, 35 years. Um, I, I began to see and hear it when I was in college. So I was at Texas A&M from 1987 to 1991. And there, through the conversations I was having with classmates, I was hearing how they were not self-identifying as Democrats, like our parents. And so that doesn't mean that they weren't voting Democrat or heavily leaning Democrat. They were not self-identifying. Well, in the past 35 years, that number has only grown. I saw some data yesterday in North Carolina. An increasing number of African-Americans are now calling themselves independent as opposed to checking off Democrat. Christopher, the reason that is important is because when you start now examining demographics, meaning age groups, and you now start examining where a black voter is in 2023 compared to a black voter in 1983, the strategy has to change. What I mean by that is there has to be more micro-targeting. Uh, and when, when, um, when uh, Andrew Gillum, when he lost in Florida, governor, he lost by 30,000 votes. Exit polling data showed that 18% of black women have voted for Ron DeSantis. Some people say, well, that was unreliable, the exit poll data, but here's what we knew. A lot of those black women were voting based upon the opportunity scholarships that were in Florida for their children to go to different schools, in charter schools, school choice. That was an issue. We see that there are African-Americans who are very much about, we ranted a woman in Georgia in 2022 uh, when Warnock was in a runoff. And she said, listen, I'm a woman. And the issue of Roe v. Wade is important. She said, but I ain't having no kids. She said, but I own a business. And so taxes is more important to me than being than Roe v. Wade. And so this was a black woman. And so I, all, I, think, so I think a part of this deal also is that these white Democratic strategists are going to have to wake up and realize that one size fit all don't work anymore. They're, you're going to have to have apps micro-targeting to black voters in a way that historically they've never had to do. No, Roland, you're absolutely right. We've, the conversations we've had about our research with Democratic campaigns and organizations boils down to the fact that in order to make this type of campaign strategy work, it's not going to be a one-glove-fits-all. It's going to have to be targeted based on census tracts, based on neighborhoods, and you're going to have to put money into advertising that you traditionally wouldn't do or that these campaigns might not have been planning to do from the beginning. And in doing so, that's, that's how you're going to get black voters to turn out at the numbers that we saw in 2008 and 2012. And that's really the only way to do it, because a lot of these campaigns are also worried that as they continue to push possibly some of these messages towards black voters, they're going to turn off other parts of the constituency. And, and that's really where um, they get hung up in what what direction do we go? Right. Do we continue to push forward with the same um, campaign strategies that we've been doing for the last decade, or do we try something new and actually try to target black voters and mobilize? But they always come back to this, well, we have limited resources. Well, we're not sure exactly how that's going to affect the, the total um, base. We're not sure exactly how that's going to affect all the voters. And it's, it's exactly like you're saying, if, if there's not a very strategic um, targeted campaign for black voters 
not just based even on statewide scale, but on um, district and neighborhood scales, it's going to be very difficult to get black voters out at the rates that these campaigns need in order to win some of these close elections. Uh, and before I go to my panel, this is very basic for Democrat. Okay, the, all those consultants can say whatever the hell they want to say. That's all cute. Here's what we know, and these are facts. The number one ranked group who vote Democrat are black women. The number two group, black men. That's one and two. Now, in their minds, oh, well, we're going to get their votes. You might get the vote based upon percentage. The problem that we're talking about is turnout, the intensity of the vote. And what I have been saying on this show is that if black people turn out at 65, 70, and 75 percent of our capacity, we can sweep elections, but that ain't going to happen if you do not have folks who are targeting them and putting the dollars behind them. Question for my panels, Matt Manning, you're first. Yeah, so the question I had for you was particularly about um, political trust and alienation. I know one of the things that you've looked at in your data is that issue, is political trust. And that, to me, seems to be the, the seminal issue here, no matter how people identify as Republicans or Democrats. And so my question to you is really twofold. One, how do you compile that data in terms of you know determining how trusting people are into the system or not? And secondly, what is your suggestion in terms of messaging, particularly for Democrats, uh, on how people can have a greater trust, black people have a greater trust in the system and therefore a greater buy-in, particularly when it comes to things like nonpartisan races? Because a lot of times on the local level, your local city council person doesn't even declare a party, right? And they're the one who has the most immediate effect on your life in terms of filling the pothole at the end of the street. So how do y'all address the political trust and alienation issue in your data? That's a great question. I've, we've been looking at trust and alienation for probably about 10 years now, because we, we consider it also something essential to understanding black politics. When it comes to trust, we, we really break it down into what's called specific and diffuse trust, where specific trust is trust in sort of the temporary political figures, political symbols, what's going on in politics at that moment, where diffuse trust is really this broader trust in systems and in institutions. And for over time, we've shown, we, we know that diffuse trust is always relatively low compared to other groups, just because of the history of discrimination and oppression that black folk have, have lived through. And so it's, it's always been a struggle to get that level of diffuse trust up. However, um, our research and other research suggests that trust can be built, specific and diffuse trust, through representation that looks like the community and through substantive policy gains. However, it's going to be very difficult to get that type of representation and to achieve <laughs> policy gains for the black community with turnout, not at historic rates, at these levels that we're talking about, right? And so that's why we continue to push forward. Well, if long-term we really want to build trust, we have to understand that there needs to be a very committed campaign to turning out black voters that's looking at new and unique strategies to do so, especially after the Obama era, because the only way that we're going to regain this trust in, this, in the system and sort of rebuild allegiance to a system that many black folks see as oppositional is by showing them that they can win races, they can be represented by people that they believe in, that they look like, and those people can then turn around and pass policy, create legislation that substantively benefits them in the long haul. 
And so, you know, that's kind of our, our short and long when it comes to trust and alienation. But we absolutely agree this is a central issue to black politics and something that we've been researching for a while. Um, Michael. Hey, Dr. Chris, uh, thanks for coming on today. I've been to your website. You have a lot of good information there. Um, we just spoke with Cliff Albright from Black uh, Voters Matter. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Omari Hosang, Hosang on from Black Voters Matter in Louisiana. How can we um, create and increase a black political infrastructure that can message to African-Americans, educate us politically, educate us on the uh, issues, the policies, and help turn out the African-American vote. Uh, I do agree that the Democratic Party has to do a better job of messaging. But at the same time, I think this is about self-preservation for African-Americans. And we ha I think we have to take more control of our own destiny. destiny and I don't think we can rely on the Democratic Party. We can use them as a tool, but can't look at them as a savior. How can we create a, uh, a greater black political infrastructure? I think, I think that's a great question and something that clearly we've been struggling with for decades now, how to create some sort of infrastructure that's self-sufficient and that doesn't rely on the Democratic Party or any party, therefore, to, to win elections or to pass legislation. I, the, to me, the first step is um, education and to, to really civic education and an understanding of politics and the importance of politics in people's lives. From our focus groups, from our research, we found that most people see politics as a periphery issue and that there's things such as paying rent, getting to work, getting their kids to school, dealing with health care issues, right, that they don't necessarily see as inherently political, but more as everyday survival issues that take up most of their attention. And so in order to move towards a system of infrastructure within the black community where we have sort of community level support, individual level support that doesn't rely upon these political parties, we have to continue to find ways to educate people um, and to push people into a politicization that in which they believe that politics is just as essential, is just an essential part of the house that they're dealing with. Um, we kind of have unique tools that have come about in the last five, five or 10 years, right? We have social media now and ways to telecommunicate with people that we've never had before. And so I think we need to continue to experiment with these and, and find creative ways to use the limited funding that many of our community organizations have to reach as many people as possible and sort of inform them of the importance of politics and building networks um, and building channels and organizations that bring people together with an understanding that politics needs to something that they consider as an important element of their everyday life, and it's intertwined with everything they do. But again, this, this is not like I'm, I'm trying to be careful here and not talk about it as something simple, right, that we should have done already. This is, it's a very, very difficult hill to climb, and it's, it's probably going to take um, a, a sort of nationwide organization to do it. And we've seen a, a little bit of that, right, in the wake of Trayvon Martin and some of the um, the police killings over the last decade, um, the way that social media and the internet and some of these new technologies can be used to mobilize people, but there's still a gap between getting the information to people and actually building that infrastructure, right? Infrastructure similar to what we see maybe in a civil rights movement, right? Where it was necessary to go door to door and to talk to people. And so we, we kind of have to rely upon some of these old tactics of, of building, bringing people together along with possibly using some of the new technology we have. 
But again, it's it's a really great question and, and another tough answer, right? None of these are easy questions. Well, before I go to Omicron, before I go to Omicongo, I'm going to uh, speak to that, and uh, and this is what is going what is going to have to take. It is, and again, let me be very clear. We're going to have to sit here, and we're going to go back to the other shot. We're going to have to sit here and be very clear. We have to, we have to actually put a number to it and get black folks to understand that this shit ain't free. Let me say right. it. Let me let me say this again for all the folk who are watching, listening. This shit ain't free. The work ain't free. Uh, and so the work that Christopher is doing, the work that uh, Cliff Albright and Black Voters Matter and Latasha Brown, the work that uh, Georgia Stand Up, all these different groups, the work that this stuff ain't free. And so it's a lot of people who spend their time out there talking about we need this and we need that and we need this and we should be doing that and we should be doing this here. And I'm sure Christopher, he, he hears all this sort of stuff. And then you're sitting there going, OK, but where are you, are you putting your money where your mouth is? And so that, that, is, that is what it takes. I have said to folks on this show, hey, stop sending money to candidates and the parties and send it to third party groups because you know the money's going to get on the ground what is actually needed because I'm going to say it again. And this is the problem. And we're going to talk about it in our next segment. Christopher, you know this here. These white consultants, they want to dump everything on television. Bring up Christopher, y'all. Come on, please. They want to dump everything on television. They want to keep putting everything on television. And that reaches a point where you have total saturation. And the reality is people are like, man, turn that crap off. Turn it off. Turn it off. You have to put money on the ground. You have to look at the numbers and then go, okay, and your, as your research shows, huh, okay, in this particular state, in this region of the state, Inside of this region of the state, this is what this city and town did. And now that I'm breaking down the city and town, now I'm breaking down the precincts in that city and town. So now it's, oh, okay, this precinct here had a 1,000 eligible voters, but only 120 actually voted. Okay, target people and resources to knock on those doors to at least get that number from 120 up to 500. And now target this precinct and this precinct and this precinct. One, that requires money. That requires people. And if you don't have that, then you're stuck hoping a campaign comes around to do it. And from what we've known, campaigns aren't doing that, right? The Precisely. The most successful campaigns we've seen turning out black folks since the Obama era have been state, regional or local campaigns, such as the Black Voter Matters, such as the um, campaigns in Georgia that are doing it sort of on their own, sometimes in coordination with parties. But most of the infrastructure is built over time on their own with their own resources that they've been able to gather. Absolutely. Uh, I'm a Congo. Uh, Mr. Tyler, Tyler, I was really in, in interested in your slide showing the prototype in terms of what people were interested in. And given the fact that you have Black Lives Matter as the top priority for many people that you're speaking to, how do, are you concerned that Democrats are going to be losing serious support, even more support from the black community as it relates to Biden's stance with Israel and Gaza? Because what I'm seeing is that many black people who are, are in support of, of Palestine or at the very least are in support of a ceasefire. And I'm concerned, as I'm also seeing from like the Arab American community, they're saying that 
We're just getting lip service from the administration, and though we're never going to go vote for Trump, we're so angry with what's going on right now that we just might end up staying home. And that might be a concern for the black community as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely a concern. So just to be clear, the experiment that I put up was juxtapositioning characteristics when it came to perspectives on Black Lives Matter. And so for us, the ideal candidate um, was an ally of Black Lives Matter, but this was compared to someone who did not show support or said they were not an ally of Black Lives Matter. So it doesn't necessarily say they're affiliated or anything, but their opinion on Black Lives Matter was one of the most important elements when understanding what made Black um, respondents choose one candidate over another. And so, you know, the the fact that the Democratic Party has not necessarily seen put positioned themselves as an ally of the black community in many ways, right? But most recently, when it comes to this, um, the conflict in Israel and Palestine in the Middle East, it's it's definitely a worry and a concern that black voters will continue to lose even more enthusiasm. And, and now we're talking about possibly some high propensity black voters or black voters that were planning on coming out and voting and have consistently voted are now being turned off even more. Um, and there's, there's absolutely a reason to believe that, you know, from our focus groups, black voters and low and high propensity black voters were already disillusioned with Democrats. They already didn't really see much in terms of policy returns from the party. They didn't recognize any individual changes in their lives since Biden had won in 2020. And so anything like this that can suggest sort of that um, the Democrat Party's intentions or attention is diverted somewhere else, rather than continuing to try and work for, as Roland put, the base of voters that are the most supportive of the, of the party can turn people off very quickly. And so, you know, you can see conflict unfolds over the next year, possibly over the next um, few months. But there's absolutely the, the potential here for black people in America to view um, Biden's sort of support of Israel as something negative for the black community and something sort of um, <coughs> prioritizing international affairs over what could be done for black folk at home. Uh, Christopher uh, Taller, we still appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Hotep, everybody. This is Michael M. Hotep from the African History Network. Our Black Empowerment Friday weekend sale is on right now. We have a fantastic promotion for you. Get our bundle pack of two online history courses that I teach, as well as my 15 lecture downloadable bundle, African History Awakens the African Mind from Mental Death. These are both from me, Michael M. Hotep. They're on sale right now for only $100. That's 76% off. My first online history class is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Kemet is one of the original names for Egypt. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles. There's about 100 articles that we cover in the class. Over 200 slides that I put together as well. The, and there are also video clips, including excerpts of interviews I've done with some of our historians and scholars, as well as Renoka Rashidi, Professor James Small, Anthony Browder, Professor Kabahaya Wafa Kamane, and Dr. David M. Hotel. In the second class, 
that I teach. It's called Black Resistance Movements from the Haitian Revolution, the U.S. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, and Black Power Movement, 1800 to 1968. And we dig in deep and look at history chronologically from 1800 to 1968 and look at what leads to the Civil War taking place. We study the Jim Crow era, the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877, World War I, World War II, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, and the Great Migration, 1915 to 1970 to understand what happened to us after slavery ended, what were the laws and policies put in place to put us where we are today to understand where we need to go from here. I created both of these classes, created the curriculum, shows the content as well. This sale has been extended to Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You'll see the promotion at the top of the page. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content. You can join us for our next online class live Saturday, December 2nd, 2023, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch all of these classes on demand. And even after the course is over with, you don't lose access. Register right now. Order right now. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This sale has been extended to Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Uh, also, if you'd like to stop it for information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. The sisters keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills. All right, we have to get out of here. Remember, right now, it's correct wrong behavior. is not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace.